All right, so as promised, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, here we go. Children, obey your parents. And every parent said, yes, yes. We as parents secretly believe that 98% of the world's problems would be solved if children would just listen to their parents. And our parents secretly believe that 98% of the world's problems would be solved. And their parents, it's an infinite regression to parents just begging that children would obey. And if, if it seems like a weird space to start a chapter, it's because it is. Uh, see, these chapter and verse things weren't added to English Bibles until the mid-1500s, about 1560, and they were added for speed and efficiency. It's a lot easier for us to have a discussion about this stuff when I can say, hey, go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Bam. Regardless of translation, regardless of experience handling the Bible, you can find that relatively quickly. Whereas if I said, hey, look at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Go about 80% of the way through, 90% of the way through, and try to find the word children, which it might be in your translation or not. So while these additions are very good for speed and efficacy, they are not sometimes so great for understanding the meaning of a passage as they define it in the middle of a thought, and that's what's happened here. This is actually a, a part of a larger idea that starts about 12 verses back where Paul writes, wives... Love your husbands as you love the Lord. Serve your husbands as you serve the Lord. To which he follows, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and ultimately died for them, right? So he sets the bar pretty high in our marital relationships. And so we see 6-1 as a natural uh, progression of this idea, right? Wives, husbands, what should come next? Children, because he's talking about family relationships and what these should look like when you say, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he advises children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. So we see what he's building. Wives, love your husbands like you love the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like you love the Lord. Kids, Obey as if you're obeying the Lord. So what should come next? That wasn't rhetorical. What should come next? Parents. Thank you, one person paying attention. I appreciate you. <laughs> Parents should come next. And Paul doesn't disappoint. Fathers. I almost skipped this one because this is hard. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Oh, why? It's so fun. Like, it's so fun. You realize dads were the original trolls before the internet was invented, right? <laughs> like, that's, that's how we play offense. Like, oh yeah, kid, you wanna make my life harder? Guess what I get to do as your parent? Not biblical. Clearly it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children in spite of how much fun it is. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so we see wives, husbands, kids, parents, He's delivering, at the end of this letter, spiritual truths about how we regard our family relationships in light of the life-changing truth that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. This can some, come, sometimes be confusing. It can sometimes be a stumbling block as people try to navigate that because chances are, if you live in the Western world, you have heard the name Jesus. You know something about Jesus. 
There's more songs that have been sung about him, more pages that have been written about him, more talks that have been given about him than anyone that has ever existed, and it's not even close. In fact, the way we keep track of time and dates even pays homage to Jesus Christ. Before his birth, years are marked with BC, before Christ. After his, his birth, it's marked Ammo Domini, in the year of our Lord. Even our calendar gives reference to Jesus Christ. But to know about someone is very different than to know someone. We're not writing a book report here. We're engaged in a relationship. And we enter into that relationship through a pretty easy path, through something that we can all kind of acknowledge. The first step to knowing Jesus Christ is to admit, hey, I've messed up. I've done wrong. Very few people have a a problem with this part of the equation. Most people go, yeah, I've told lies and then gotten really, really angry when somebody has lied to me because lying is wrong. The vast majority of us have failed to do good when we knew what the good thing to do was. And we know that's wrong because we know it's good to help people. We know that's good. And if we need any help with this, we can just ask the people in our lives. I'm sure that some of us could be given very detailed reports on the ways we have failed the people that we love because even though we might struggle with the fact that we've done wrong, the people around us don't struggle with the fact that we've done wrong. That seems to be the fairly easy part. I've done wrong. And because I've corrupted this creation, because this was not the original intention, the world that we currently experience is not the world we were supposed to experience. When God created this, he looked at his creation and he said, that's good. And in heavenly language, good equals perfect. This creation is perfect. And we've corrupted this creation because we can all agree that the place we live is not perfect. And we've hurt each other. We've wounded each other. And as God's children, he's not a big fan of that. He doesn't like when we hurt each other. He doesn't like when we withhold goodness to each other. He doesn't like all the scars that we've put on one another's hearts. And so we stand correctly judged by a perfect God for the wrong that we have done, both intentionally and unintentionally, and the wrong that we will continue to do, because we're not stopping today. We're gonna continue wounding each other. We're gonna continue corrupting his creation. And so we stand judged and as, as a result of that judgment, separated from him. But God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement, in his great love for us, sends his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to ultimately be tortured and murdered on a cross, put in the ground and raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit, thus taking the wrong that we did, taking the penalty that we deserve, the separation that we deserve, the judgment that we earned onto himself so that we could not know things about him, but instead know him. And this is what it means to be the church. To say I am the church is to say that I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that truth affects literally everything. It's not some ambiguous acknowledgement that exists out here in theory. When you say Jesus is who he says he is, it affects your relationships, it affects how you go about your business, 
It affects the words that come out of your mouth because it fundamentally changes who you are. It says you are a new creation. Paul took the first three chapters of his letter to tell us that when you were once characterized by what you lacked, you are now characterized by what you've been given. You now were without a family and now you have an eternal family. You have an inheritance. You have brothers and sisters. It's three chapters of stuff you could read about what you were and now what you are. And so for our purpose specifically, he's looking at these relationships in light of the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And he says, this truth affects your relationships. Love as I have loved you. Serve as I have served you. And we're really mostly good with all of that. And if we're going to follow the progression, we kind of think, kind of anticipate what would come next would maybe be something about, well, friends are the family you choose, so how should I treat my friends? Or a really good one would be grandparents, right? That would be the next logical one. Grandparents, you need to apologize to your adult children for letting your grandkids get away with things that you would have grounded me for. That would be a great scripture right there. That, w- that would be money. We can get behind that. Um, that's, that's not what we get. What we get is instead one of the most difficult passages In scripture, it's one of the most often skipped passages in scripture because it's difficult to even read aloud. It doesn't follow the progression because Paul is about to change the game. And so without further ado, we dig in. In verse five, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. That is even difficult to read aloud. We don't want anything to do with this passage. We don't want to touch this, but it's good to. It is good to deal with tough passages in scriptures because those tough passages grow our faith and they grow our knowledge of who God is. And it doesn't get any better from there. He continues and says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. That passage sucks all the air out of the chapter. It's difficult to pay any attention to what came before or what is going to come after because we know that slavery is a morally bankrupt institution. There is no redeeming quality about it. It is one of the most obvious evils that mankind has ever inflicted upon itself. And that fact raises all kinds of really good, really responsible questions in light of this chapter. Is scripture actually saying slavery is okay? And then by extension, is God saying it? Is God saying it's permissible to own people? And if so, how could a good God endorse such an obviously evil institution? And if you walk out your faith, if you don't pretend it's theory up here, you will encounter this because you will share it and people will say, well, doesn't the scripture endorse slavery? And if we don't wrestle with this, your response will have to be, maybe, which isn't an inspiring, riveting response. So we're going to deal with this, and we're going to look at it, because I would be very angry if somebody took three sentences out of my entire body of work and pretended to know what I thought on a given subject. 
And so we're not going to do that to Paul either. We're going to look at other things that he wrote. The first starting in his letter to the church at Corinth, where he gives advice to slaves that if they can, to become free. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was called a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. He says, look, if you can escape, do it. But if you can't, don't worry about it because the Lord doesn't see you that way. If you're stuck, if you can't get your freedom immediately, don't worry because the Lord doesn't look at you the way other people do. He says, to the Lord, you're free and they're slaves. And everybody has the pleasure and honor of calling Christ Jesus master. So don't give in to that division. You're still valuable because I died for you. But that's not even close to his strongest language on the subject. His strongest language on the subject comes in his letter to Timothy in the first chapter where he says people who own people and people who sell other people, the word enslavers, are ungodly and profane. That does not sound like a ringing endorsement to me. But we can get the best view of his thoughts by looking at a less traveled book in the New Testament called Philemon where he writes to Philemon, a slave owner, concerning one of his runaway slaves, Onesimus. And this is what he writes. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, order you to let him free, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is I, none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Paul's view in these passages are very clear. He is fighting this battle on a whole nother level. It really irks people that Paul doesn't write, hey, let's gather something Let's change the laws. Let's go into government and replace people that think this is okay with people that will write laws to make it not okay. It really irks people that he doesn't take a governmental stand against slavery, but he gets it. The law never drives the darkness out of men's hearts. The law only restrains behavior and drives the darkness into secret corners. The law doesn't change the hearts and minds of men. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit does that. And he does not want to compel us to do what we should do voluntarily. He wants radical transformation and a result of a radically new way of living. He's fighting this battle on a whole different battlefield. 
And he levels a pretty harsh critique at masters in the next verse. He says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Remember, he said, slaves, serve your masters as you are serving the Lord. So he turns around, he says, masters, serve your slaves as you are serving the Lord. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. That's a shot. That's a warning saying, don't forget, you have a master that sees no difference between you and him. He's not a slave to human institutions, and he will judge correctly. And that impartiality is a cornerstone of this entire passage that we looked at. Husbands, wives, kids, parents, slaves, masters, Because any of these verses can be taken out of context and weaponized against victims to keep them being victimized. Wives, obey your parents because God has told you to. That that has been weaponized for centuries. Kids, obey. These, when taken out of context, means something completely different than what they're intended to mean. These, when taken out of context, are meant to keep people in bondage and meant to keep them under the thumb of authority when that is not the case. If you look at the rest of it, it says, hey, as you love the Lord, as you serve the Lord, and when you take them as a whole, everybody falls into one of these categories. He is addressing the entire expanse of humanity. Everyone has been a child. Some have been a parent. Some have been husbands. Some have been wives. And when he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he realized there's more slaves than free men in there. And so when he writes that, he's addressing something that they're experiencing. And in doing so, he's addressing something that we're all experiencing. Each one of us falls into at least one, probably more of these categories. And each one of these categories is a category that has great conflict inherent in it. The reason we are an exhausted people is because we're consistently fighting the people we're called to love. The reason we are battle-weary and war-torn and exhausted is because we are fighting our own family. We are fighting our allies. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your kid is not your enemy. Your boss, your employee. He even digs into slavery, which is probably the most contentious relationship that has ever existed. And he says, look, even the owner or the slave, you guys aren't enemies. I can cure All of the conflict that you experience in your most intimate relationships with three words. Love one another. That's what he says. And that is a profound spiritual truth. Instead of fighting the ones we're supposed to love, let's lay those arms down it is by far a better existence than the one we have. Think about this with me for a second. 
Between Fredericksburg and Stafford and those that will watch online, about 1,500 people will hear this reading of Ephesians chapter 6. And if all 1,500 of us only look out for our own interests, only look out for what we deserve in our own rights, then every single one of us has exactly one person looking out for us. If we are all on our own train, looking for only our needs, then we have the grand total of one person advocating for us, loving us, protecting us. But if we all look out for the interests of one another, forgetting our own interests, but loving one another as God loved us, serving one another as Jesus served us, and we have 1,499 people watching out for us. Which one is better? Which one is more refreshing? Which one is actually, if we want to be selfish about it, which one is actually more advantageous to us? That we all fight for ourselves? Or that we follow the example of our Lord? And we each look out for one another's interests. We're an army that shoots at itself, that exhausts itself, fighting battles we were never meant to fight. Because there is a battle that we were meant to fight. But it's not parents against kids, it's not husbands against wives, and it's not slaves against masters. He spent a lot of time telling us what we don't need to fight in order to deliver this truth where the battle truly is. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's evil schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not enemies. You and I are not adversaries but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul covered relationships that are rife with the most conflict. Our most intimate relationships are like that, aren't they? It's not the strangers that make us the most angry. It's the one that God put us in our sphere to love. So he takes the most intimate relationships and he spells out very clearly, cure those by loving one another, and instead fight the battle that really counts. The battle for the hearts and minds of men is not physical. The battle is spiritual. The battle is the darkness in our own hearts. The battle is our desire to be served. The battle is waged by celestial beings, heavenly beings, fighting for culture, fighting for the hearts and men's. This is the true battle. It's not a battle for supremacy here and now in this little vapor we call a life. It's a battle for the souls of men and women for eternity. This is the battle. And if I am to be exhausted fighting, let it not be because I fight my wife and my kids. Let it be because I fight the battle that's worth fighting. If I am to be exhausted, let me battle in the heavenly realm for the hearts and minds of men that they may know Jesus. Because in Paul's writings, we see this throughout his writings. 
No distinction between husbands and wives. No distinction between children and parents. No distinction between slaves and masters. The church of Corinth, he writes this, just as body through one has many parts, but all its many parts from one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. He says, look, there should be no ethnic battles. The battle's not physical. There should be no earthly battle, slave or free. In a verse in Galatians, he says, look, there's no slave or free. There's no man or woman. There shouldn't be gender battles. He says, the battle that matters is against cosmic forces in spiritual realms waged against this present darkness that seeks to separate people from Jesus Christ. The only category in Paul's mind that exists is those who know Jesus and those who need to know Jesus. And he says, those of us who know Jesus shouldn't be fighting each other because we're not each other enemy and those who need Jesus aren't the enemy either. And we would do well to remember this truth. But it's a hard truth to get behind because I am really, really good at fighting the ones I love because I got a lot of practice at that. I look at you. I can fight in my own strength. I can take you. And if I can't take you, then maybe I got more resources. Maybe I got more money. Maybe I got more time. Maybe I got more energy. Maybe I've got a position of influence. I might not be able to dominate you with strength, but I'll dominate you with my resources or my favorite one. I'm, you might be stronger than me. You might have more resources than me, but I'm smarter than you. So a well-placed insult or a really clever manipulation will get me what I want. Because we've all done this one. We fought, we battled, and then down the road, we're replaying the battle in our mind, we're replaying the conversation, and we go, oh man, that's what I should have said. That's it, ah, oh, that's what I should have said. And then, if you're over 40, you call your friend. If you're under 40, you text them, and you say, hey, you remember that fight that I told you about with that guy? I got it, this is what I should have said, bam. And your friend goes, oh yeah, that would have been awesome. And that was like two months ago. <laughs> because it's not just the battles that exhaust us, it's the replaying in our mind and living through it. How could I have gained the edge? How could I have been supreme? How could I have leveraged what God has given me to dominate another one of his children? That's the essence of that. And he says, that's, that's not it, but it's comfortable because that's what we're practiced doing. But thankfully, God in his wisdom hasn't left us with that tension to wrestle with us. He tells us exactly how to fight the spiritual battle. And there's tons of preaching on this. What comes next is called the armor of God passage. There's tons of really good preaching on it. There's tons of not so great preaching on it. So choose carefully. But you can read that for yourself and you can listen to preaching on that for yourself because uh, there's a lot of that. Not so much on the slavery passage for some reason. Can't figure that out. But there seems to be a lot of it on the armor of God. But we're not going to take it line by line because we can summarize it in one phrase. It's in verse 10. 
Be strong in the Lord. Because the armor that he gives us is the helmet of salvation. Who's our salvation? Jesus. The belt of truth is another piece of armor. Who is the way, the and the life? Jesus. It's that simple. We don't need to spend 15 minutes in this. Be strong in the Lord. My favorite one. Pick up the sword that is the word of God. In John's historical account of the Christ, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Who's the word? Be strong in the Lord. That's it. Because this is his arena. His name is victory. His power is unprecedented. His presence, his mere showing up, inspires worship. This is a God that does not create with his hands. He creates with a word and he creates whatever he desires. This is his arena and he is our champion. It is difficult to put into words his power and his glory and his intelligence and his love because he is the only being in creation for which words fail. This is how great our champion is. He is indescribable. We can know in part in this life, but we'll be eternity when we get the full picture. This is our God. Be strong in the Lord. But that still doesn't answer what is my role, right? We have a role. And this is the part where I'm supposed to give you three keys to win the spiritual battle. And they're all going to start with the letter C or the letter F. And you're going to like roll out of here in the parking lot going, yes, I have the three keys to win the spiritual battle. And they just all happen to start with the same letter so that I can remember them. How convenient was that? And then you're going to apply those. And it's not going to work. Because that's not how life works. There aren't three keys to anything. Ever. And since Paul didn't finish that way, we will choose not to finish that way either. At the end, he writes, with this in mind, with the knowledge that the battle is spiritual, with the knowledge that the people closest to me are not my enemies, with the knowledge the people that are farthest from me are not my enemies, with the knowledge that this battle will not be won by my cleverness or my strength or my great strategy, with the knowledge that the battle is the Lord's, here's what he asks us to do. Be alert and always keep praying for all of the Lord's people. It's so simple, we almost recoil at it. Because wouldn't it be almost better if he said, pick up a weapon and give up your life and charge the gate? Like, I can think of that. It's too simple. I just need to pray for all of the Lord's people. This is what he asked me to do? Yes, and he doubles and triples down on it. He says, pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray. This is our primary role in the spiritual battle because when we pray, we are reminded that we are not enemies. When I pray for you, you can't be my enemy. When I pray for my wife, she can't be my enemy. When I pray for my kid, he can't be my enemy. Something happens inside me. Prayer is not just letting God in on the secrets we think we've hidden from him. Prayer is communication for the purpose of radically transforming our hearts and minds. 
And when we pray, we are reminded of who the true enemy is. We are reminded of where the true battle is fought. And we are reminded that as God's church, we are a Holy Spirit resourced force of light backed by our brothers and sisters in Christ, grounded in the never-ending, self-sacrificing love of a heavenly Father for the purpose of declaring the excellencies of the one that has drawn us from darkness to light. That is who we are. And Paul says, stop wounding each other. He says, be strong in the Lord. And we would be wise to listen. And we would be wise to be proud of who we are and fearlessly declare we are the church of Jesus Christ. And these truths, while poetic and inspiring, are often forgotten because we deal with the problem that's right here. We deal with the problem that we can touch. We deal with the problem that we can see. So it's very easy to get distracted. It's very easy to forget these spiritual truths. So Jesus, in his wisdom, instituted a way that we can remember this. We call it communion. Fredericksburg, you guys are gonna take together with Caleb right now, online in Stafford. We're gonna take together. If you didn't get uh, your, your bread and your cup, and you would like to partake. And if you are a believer, if you agree that Jesus is who he says he is, we invite you to take with this thing we call the Mount family. On his last night with his disciples, Jesus Christ shared a meal. And in that meal, he took a bread and he broke that bread in half. And he said, as often as you do this, remember me. As often as you do this, remember that my body was broken for you. Our freedom came at no cost and great benefit to us, but it was a great cost to the God of the universe. And when we break that bread, we remember what he did for us. And that verse where it says, husbands, serve your wife as Christ served the church, remembers the extent that we are to go to be broken and ultimately to give our lives. So as we take the bread and as we break the bread, let us remember the body that was broken for us. And after taking the bread, he took the cup and he said, let this cup represent the blood that I spilled for you. Let it be another reminder of what I did for you. Let it be another reminder of the lengths that I will go so that you can know me, not know things about me, so that you can know me and be loved by me and be transformed by me. So as we take this cup, let us remember the blood that was spilt that we can know our Savior. Our prayer team is going to come up to the front as I close this. And if you, for the first time, came to the realization 
that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, we would love nothing more than to talk and pray with you. If you want to be known at this Mount family, sometimes it's big, sometimes it's a little chaotic. We don't want you to be here anonymously. Come up, pray with these men and women. You don't have to have something wrong. Just come up and pray with them. They would love to just pray with you and know your name so that they can pray with you throughout the week as we've been directed to do. As we fight this spiritual battle, pray for each other. Pray for me. Pray for believers all around the world. Because this is how we fight our battles not by the strength that we think we've been given, but by the champion who allowed himself to be nailed to two pieces of wood that we might be for him forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us even when we don't love you. And we ask for a daily reminder of the revelation that our battle is not physical that the battle for the hearts and minds of men is a spiritual battle and we are to be strong in you and pray for each other so that focus can remain paramount so that we are not exhausted fighting one another but fresh by the realization that your name is victory then the battle is already won and put our perspective in the appropriate place. We ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and in your son's name, amen.